0: hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, welcome to Rattlecast number 113, thanks so much for joining me, um, it's going to be a great show for you as always, our uh, special guest tonight is going to be Mark Jarman, he'll be on the line in about 15 minutes, but before we begin I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry, been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization we just do this because we love poetry and i know you love poetry too because you're here spending your sunday night with us so please do make sure you're subscribed make sure you click the like button no matter where you're watching this or when there's something you can click to tell the computers that you enjoy it and other people should watch this content because it is great content we have a wonderful poet every week that we're sharing, bringing right into your living rooms and pockets. So please do make sure you click the like button subscribe and share and stuff because algorithms rule the world. And um, now before we begin, we like to start out with Poet Respond. Unfortunately, today's poet can't be with us. Um, He lives in Singapore. Um, It's Sean Wang, and um, it's about 9 or 8 a.m. Monday in Singapore right now. And he just went for work, so he can't join us today. But we have this poem, which is very interesting called testing and this is something that i hadn't heard of before um the article here uh, that sean was writing, let me read his note first so um so sean Rang writes um in singapore we are infamous for our vigorous national exams born out of a strict asian culture that places an emphasis on academic excellence one of our key exams is the psle taken by students at 12 years old and holds the power to determine, in essence, the course of, our li- of their lives. Reading about the recent outcry regarding the difficulty of such exams in the time of a pandemic, it made me reflect on my own personal experience. For me, these exams were the first time I realized that I was in many ways average and unexceptional. I think coming to terms with my inadequacy was one of the first steps I took toward adulthood and a struggle I continue with to this day. And um, that's what he's talking about here. And here's the article. Um, this is from the Straits Times. I'll show it here if I can get it on screen fast enough. Uh, this is from the Straits Times. Speechless. Some parents' kids upset over tough PSLE math paper. And uh, the article goes on to just talk about the situation where this, this test, which everybody takes at age 12, um, it determines which high school you get to go to and then thus which college you get to go to. So it's it's very... Influential, and um, and you know, given the stressful times of coronavirus, a lot of students are having trouble with it, and a lot of parents are discussing the ways in which um, maybe they should be doing things differently, uh, which is kind of going on here in the United States, too. It, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, how weird school is like, it doesn't really make sense the way we do a lot of things, it's very anachronistic, and um. I don't know. So, so this is interesting to see. It's always great to look around the world and see other things that aren't in our news here. And uh, so, it's a very interesting article and just a wonderful poem by Sean. And I'm going to read it for you now. Here's this is Testing by Sean Wang. Testing. I first learnt about the world in shapes. A ball is a circle, is a sun, is an earth, and a square is a chair, is a window, is a tile. Then I moved to colors green for grass, red for fire, blue for water in the sky, white for clouds, and black for the night and its ashes. Then it was words, stringing vowels like a train rumbling through the tracks of my throat, in clean whistles and garbled blares, letters, the dance of the crayon, and the breath of ink spinning in patterns like a snowflake. But numbers, words which now had no thing, but rather a multitude of things hanging, hinging onto its curves like a curious hook, and they could move amongst themselves in a forest of symbols rustling in deep cover and emerge a fawn, a doe, a deer. Growing up is learning to say things better. Ever since I was born, I knew I liked strawberries, their sour sweet buzz, even before I saw its sun pith rising in crimson dawn. My babbles would have been much less convincing. What no one told me is how empty it would be when you had nothing to say, when your inadequacy stares you wide-mouthed and blank, white, as unanswered question, on a test running from your desperate pen. Grief you cannot explain away, the sadness that returns night after night as the sun lowers itself into a hole and the sea reclaims its land. When it was you and your failure in a room face-to-face, a reflection in a breaking shadow, a deaf God and his silent stars. Now how could I put this into shapes, colors, words, or numbers? How lonely, how devastating, how adult. Once again, that was the uh, poem for this week that was Sean Wang with Testing, uh, the Sunday poem today. And um, we also... I thought we'd go back in time a little bit and look at some old poems it's one of those days well you know what maybe not mark Jarman's calling us right now let's just skip this whole thing i'm gonna to go to break really quick because i don't have any guests that could make it today so i'm gonna just take a quick break and call up mark and i think he's ready right now back. Thanks so much for your patience as we connect, get connected with uh, Mark Jarman. I, I'm going to re- uh, play the other poem that we were talking about a little later in the show. I think during the open lines, I'll play this other poem. I'll keep it up. But um, I'm really excited to have Mark as a guest. I think I mentioned it last week, but when I was an undergraduate, not really a poet, um, it was Mark, Mark's book on holy sonnets. was one of the things that sort of light the fire of poetry for me. I found that just randomly in the stacks in college at the library there And um, it was a time where I was sort of looking at religion too and, and looking at poetry for the first time And it was just such a wonderful book And then Questions for Ecclesiastes was so great I, I found that later And um, so it was one of the poets that turned me on to poetry uh, Mark Jarman is the author of 11 books of poetry now The Her- Heronry is his most recent He has also published two books of essays and reviews And the most recent one is Dailiness Which is just out from uh, Paul Dry Books um, questions for Ecclesiastes won the 1998 Lenore Marshall Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Jarman's other awards include a Joseph Henry Jackson Award and fellowships from the National Endowments of the Arts and the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. In um, 2011, he received the Belcones Poetry Prize for Fires: new and selected poems. Uh, he's recently retired as Centennial Professor of English at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lives with his wife, the soprano, Amy Jarman. And here he is... Mark Sherman, hello, you? Mark.
1: Hi there. Hey, it's, how are you?
0: I'm great. It's I great to have you. I think we first
1: met in 1999. I think I came by the offices in Studio City.
0: Oh, that was 2005. Alan, yeah. Was that 2005? Five. Oh. Yeah. So 16 years ago.
1: Alan Fox interviewed me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if we did. We go out to lunch too afterward. I think probably. And, I don't uh,
1: remember. We may have.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was great. I think you were coming back for some other event, and we just, it was a perfect uh, arrangement to get to see you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that's in issue number 25, if anybody wants to go back and buy that um, excellent interview. Um, but so, how are you doing now, Mark? It's been 16 years, I guess. Fine. Um,
1: I'm doing fine. I'm doing well. I As as you said, I'm retired. I find it agrees with me very much. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I kind of feel a little. Get up in the morning and do just what I want to do. Mm hmm which is uh, usually write and then read. Well, do you want to start us out uh, by reading a poem? Sure. Um, do you have anything that you'd like me to read? I can, let me let me read the, the, the poem that is the first poem in my new book, Zeno's Eternity, because sure. this is a kind of a poem that a reader will e- either go, oh yeah, or hmm. Um, I found out that, The favorite poem of Groucho Marx was 30 days, half September, April, June, and November, that he liked it because it gave him information. So I thought I would write such a mnemonic poem, uh, and I called mine memory song. So this is the first poem in my book. It's just a little thing. Memory song. Day after, remembered laughter day before even score day of hand in glove day for night twilight night for day star spray day in day out whisper shout
0: excellent and that's the opening poem memory song um yeah. from um zeno's um
1: Zeno's eternity.
0: Zeno's eternity. And um yeah. uh, what what is that referring to Zeno's eternity?
1: Well, it's referring to my own take on the great one of the, all of the great paradoxes of Zeno which uh, are based on the issue of stasis that no object can move to another point in time because of all of the points it would have to go through. It has to go to each one. He uses the arrow. Um, in one famous illustration, he uses Achilles chasing a hare, and another one. Um, but it's a kind of gloomy paradox, but I'm trying to see it in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. Zeno's eternity is, um, a never ending present. You were in this place and, um, That I have a poem called The Arrow Paradox, which is the title poem of the manuscript, which tries to suggest that. But it's also about the experience we've all had in the last year and a half of being locked down um, in this pandemic reality in which time seems both to extend endlessly, but also uh, telescope inward to a single point.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, So a number of the poems are about that. Memory song is just trying to write a poem that Groucho marks my boy.
0: And so, so when's that book coming out that that's from Paul dry books too, I think uh, right? next year
1: maybe. Uh, yeah. I I'm hoping this next year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were saying on the test call, like, like the Paul dry book is just doing amazing work all of a sudden. Now it seems like every yeah. time we turn around, there's another great Paul dry book book coming out.
1: They are really excellent, excellent work in nonfiction and uh, poetry. Nonfiction is, is his thing. His latest uh, is Rachel Hoddis' book of essays. I have it upstairs called Piece by Piece. Uh, the wonderful memoir and um, essays about poetry and other poets. Rachel Hades.
0: Yeah, and your newest book um, from from um, Paul Dry, which came out last year, I'll put it on screen for everybody. This is a book of essays on yeah. poetry. Uh, this is Dailiness. Yeah. And um, yeah. I just, I had to say, I mean, the, the package that you sent with the, the Heronry and Dailiness, it, just, it was just such two great books. I loved reading both. And this is one of the best oh, thank you. books of essays on poetry I've read in a long time. It reminds me of, you know, reading Tony Hoagland back in the, you know, when he would be coming out with those Yes, books. well,
1: he was, he was incomparable, I thought.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and a great loss.
0: So so maybe uh, talk a little bit about the title of this um, of this book, Dailiness. Oh,
1: sure. Um, well, let me... Look at the um, first of all. Um, the epigraph is for my wife, and it includes a passage from the Psalms Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. And that sense of the day as being this solar unit by which we measure time uh, and by which we might measure a life of writing. Um, the way I know I, I certainly do is at the heart of this. So uh, I have a number of essays writing as a daily practice, but the poem, for example, or the preface is the poetry of daily life. It's about coming to poetry in some routine fashion and the fact that routine can lead to adventure. That uh, the daily discovery or being being at your desk daily uh, is where you can find, and I learned this early on, uh, what we might call inspiration, but you've got to be present for it. And um, so not everybody works this way. This is the way I work. And one of the stories I tell in dailiness in the, um, I believe the title essay um it's a story of returning to a town in Italy where my wife and I lived 40 years ago. Um and uh it was up on the Tiber it was in Umbria and we would take the bus into Rome once a month to get money at American Express this is way before ATMs. Mm-hmm. And we noticed that on the bus ride the same people would board uh, there was a woman who would be going to business somewhere. These are from little towns along the Tiber on the way between uh, this town in Umbria and Rome. And there would be a man who clearly was a mechanic. He'd get on with some obstreperous piece of machinery. All of these people knew each other. They seemed to know each other. And we would see them going into Rome. And when we took the bus back, we'd see them again. And so 10 years later, we came with our two little daughters and spent uh, some time in this town. And we once again, took the bus into Rome and we saw the same people. Mm -hmm. And for them, of course it was a routine kind of thing. This is what they did daily. But for us, it was an affirmation, um, a kind of epiphany. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, the excitement or discovery of what you're doing every day, and in my case, trying to write a poem or work on a poem or do something, is what is meant by dailiness. Yeah. It sounds yeah it might sound commonplace, but it's more than that, I think.
0: Yeah, and and do you um, were you able to write? Like, how long have you been writing daily or, or working on poetry every day? Were you able to do that while you um, were teaching too?
1: I try to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And it's a matter of take, you know, taking workout daily, having a span of time every day where you are thinking about your writing, mm-hmm. not necessarily starting something, but finishing something or thinking about something. It's just been a habit since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I had a great, great teacher in, uh, in high school, an English teacher who, um, basically suggested that I had to, if I was going to be a writer, I had to uh, practice, 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 you would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not it, it unlike something that Pound once said about the poet and comparing him to the uh, concert pianist. You practice all the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: for the 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 recital. So all of those things have been part of my life, I think, since I was a teenager, maybe since I was about 17.
0: Yeah. And I just always think about how much that must be shaping just how you encounter the world by thinking about, um, you know, what you're going to be writing about. And, um, you know, you're seeing the world through that lens of a of, of poem might be somewhere all the time it just makes you pay so much more attention to the dailiness of life. Right.
1: Well, yeah, it does. But the other problem, is, of course, <laughs> is that when you become ensconced in your study, as I am often then sometimes you can lose touch. Mm-hmm. And what's been nice about being retired is that I can spend part of every day going out into the world. I mean, my wife is still teaching, so I kind of, I do the household stuff,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which means going out into the world, seeing people doing things like that. So I think that's really important. I think any any writer would tell you that wouldn't, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know that you cannot be a, a monk yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. Ahead. What do you want to read next?
1: Okay. Um, well, let me read a poem about L.A. This is the third poem in my book. It's a little longer, uh, if I may. It's about, um, well, it's uh, we were in Los Angeles in December 2016. And we stayed uh, there for a few weeks. So One of our daughters lives in L.A. And we spent Christmas out there. And um, I was reading Marcus Aurelius and uh, trying to absorb, assimilate, and I'm sure I'm not alone, the results of the uh, November election. So this is called With Marcus Aurelius in Los Angeles. And it's in a way a love poem for Los Angeles, but also where I grew up, but also a sense of having to uh, understand what looks like, and I think was correct, a cataclysm of American history. So with Marcus Aurelius in Los Angeles, I have taken a seat in a garden of open sky, hedged with ficus and bougainvillea, the bristling red flowers of bottle brush and a couple of lemon and lime trees from one of many forgotten orchards. The December sunlight, mellow and gaudy, leaning west is slanting in like truth, pushing the winter chill into the shadows. And the truth is I am sitting nearly paralyzed in an aftermath of despair, having returned to the place I think of as home and expecting the end of the world, our life, our country's life, as I scratch words into the notebook on my lap, where I also balance the book you called to myself. I am here, Marcus Aurelius, with your thoughts, each as stony as a eucalyptus pod and leafy rubble at the base of a tree too grand for this place. Nature always has an end in view, you wrote. My city is the cosmos, you wrote. A mile or so away, a famous boardwalk skirts the gray Pacific and ragged souls there find a way to eat by selling painted seashells and pebbles. And in the open-air markets, tourists probe racks of T-shirts and hats with palms and clouds. The homeless make their homes on the hard sand and the languages of the empire ripple past. And even nearer, the same babble of humanity runs along an expensive shopper street where there is not a single necessary thing for sale. If we accept that one day the sea will cover us, or retreat from us completely, abandoning the earth, and that it may be tomorrow or the day after, even as we hear the rumbling surf rise an octave, or note an unusual silence in the silence we are used to, who knows what the sea will do to this city like a sea. The garden shadows are crossing the pages of my notebook, while your pages remain sunlit. Nature always has an end in view for us, if not for itself. Our gift is to see that. Our nature is to see and not wholly believe. Marcus Aurelius, philosopher, one of the five good emperors of Rome. I won't pretend you were other than a dictator who squandered his reign and after his own soul. A little flesh, a little breath, you wrote, and a reason to rule all that is myself. You lived at the end of a fortunate era, says a historian who loved you, and still urged yourself to rise daily and do the work of a human being, to stop philosophizing about what a good person is and be one. That historian who loved him was Edward Gibbon in the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. He thought they were there was a period of about a hundred years after after Christ died of um, good emperors the antonines Marcus Aurelius was one he mentioned too. he called it a fortunate era, one of the most fortunate eras in human civilization said mr gibbon
0: do you do you feel like um that we're living i mean I'm kind of ask, asking about what's t- about in the poem, but do you feel like we're living at the end of a fortunate era? Would you describe it that way like it does feel so similar to the fall of of the Roman Empire, right?
1: um gosh i hate to be gloomy yeah <laughs> um i i can't i can't answer that i think we all hope that we're not mm-hmm. um and i do do believe we have wor- lived through worse eras i mean uh, uh you may be old enough i'm old enough to remember um you know, duck and cover under your desk yeah. in, the f- in the 60s. And um, I used to have nuclear bomb dreams, war dreams as a child. So uh, I, I hope not. Yeah. I hope we're not at the end of a fortunate era. I hope that this, this particular era uh, has been an aberration Mm-hmm. not this not that it hasn't always been possible, yeah,
0: not yeah. that well,
1: it always hasn't been potential,
0: yeah that's kind of always the the a comfort in a weird way is that sort of everybody you know every era of people have thought that they were living in sort of the end of the era, you know that as yeah. long as you well, you know there's always that apocalyptic strain where we think that this is it, right. and it really feels like it every time you know yeah. I mean you had the. The nuclear fear back then, but then also like yeah. the assassinations of the 60s, and you know, right. you know, and then you know, but going back to the um, yeah, you know, the relig- you know, holy times, all of that, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Um, I, yeah, um, my students uh, of the past 20 years understand one landscape in particular, and it's always dystopian mm-hmm. and apocalyptic. <laughs> you don't why you don't want to live in this. I mean, utopia may not be maybe foolish and no place, but why the natural inclination to a world of you know, first described in the Mad Max movies? Why? Mm-hmm. Why is this just the natural place you want to go? My my sense of the landscape when I was growing up was basically the idyllic landscape of <laughs> Southern California. Mm-hmm. To which i inclined all the time to go back to that and this not a not a bombed out place um though it was present uh, even depending on where you were in la of course mm-hmm. i lived on a hill uh, in southern california and uh, we could see the riot smoke from watts in 6465 from our house
2: mm-hmm. looking
1: inland into the basin. So um, it depends on how you cherish your own history. Gibbon is in particular interested, though, in a post-Christian world. He had no use for the rise of Christianity. He wanted to find that moment before Christianity took hold Mm -hmm. of of Roman civilization and history. And he found that period um, from about 100 30 AD to 130 AD.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that does seem like the parallel for a time right now. It really does. Um, mm. So, so how much um, is the dailiness of poetry maybe a rebellion against that? Or, a, I mean, to me, it seems very spiritual. Reading your poetry always does, oh. and 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 then the dailiness um, book of essays like puts that really you know into into stark perspective. That that it feels that way to you too. Like how much how much of writing like as a spiritual act for you and, and, and how does it help you process the world
1: um, it is a spiritual act uh, and I have written about the aspect of, of the poem as a prayer um, but I give it a lot of latitude mm-hmm. um, and I grew up in a mainstream Protestant denomination my father was a preacher my grandfather was too um, I had uncles who were preachers, it was in the family. And so, um, a sense of the way liturgy reached into daily life was something I was familiar with. Um, but I never, when I said about writing, I, I didn't understand the parallel between that. And I didn't even think about the parallel between that and prayer life, they were separate but as i've grown older and tried to talk about what it's like to sit down daily and approach the page and try to find some it i know this sounds too, a little too misto cosmo because it's so hard you know you're pushing your pen across the page i write by hand and then i later put manuscripts on on the typewriter or now on the screen to <laughs> It's so much easier to say, well, I think I'll just finish reading the paper. <laughs> um, but you you compel yourself to do it. I do it because I have so many drafts of things now that are not finished that mm-hmm. I can take out and look at every day. And uh, so a moment comes when you're trying to describe that, I think, and, and you realize that this is a ritual. Mm-hmm. And it is... Um, a gesture outwards i the poet Brenda hillman and i were in graduate school together and both had strong religious backgrounds and we were talking about prayer once and she said it's a gesture outwards. and i thought i still think that's a wonderful description because writing is so often a gesture inwards so that you can go out and give it to a reader and i'm always when i write i write for a reader i'm I may be writing for myself, and um, but I'm also eventually hoping that a reader will engage with this. Mm-hmm. Is it a form of resistance? Oh, it certainly is. It certainly is. It's a way of saying, I do this, and I'm going to spend time aside for myself to do this, um, and with, and I'm engaged with. This thing that's important to me, but also, is uh, an ancient thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to my youngest daughter, who's a very brainy person, and I said we were talking about this, and I said I don't know why I'm never satisfied. I'm never satisfied. She said because you grew up in a capitalist society, you're constantly supposed to be doing more and advancing and making more. This is for some <laughs> from someone who writes for television. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless. Mm-hmm. She had a strong point. It's an interesting point. I always thought it was a way of detaching from any sort of society and what it demands of you. Mm -hmm. But that's an interesting interesting (laughs) kind of criticism, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, But there's something really, like when you call poetry a spiritual act, there's something really deeply true about that, it seems to me, that goes back... You know, it's sort of like the deepest, most ancient thing that we do. You know, it goes back to the idea of the logos and, and naming creation into being itself. Yeah. And, and and yeah. you know, and I don't know, I was talking to um, James Pennebaker, the psychologist for the, the winter mm-hmm. issue. Um, and he was talking about um, just the way that even naming uh, like a condition that you have psychologically or, you know, something that's yeah. traumatic as trauma and knowing what to call it gives yeah. you psychological relief. And there's just such it a does. power to naming that just dates back so far into history. Like, it's sort of what, what's the foundation of all of civilization or something, is the ability I, to name things.
1: I think, um, you know, for, for the author of, of the Gospel of John, let's call him John, uh, he was a good, he had a good foundation in, um, the, in Greek philosophy, perhaps Platonic, maybe even pre-Socratic. But when he says it is Logos, That's exactly what it is. There's a sense in which the word is related to coming to consciousness. And -hmm. you wanna give names to these these aspects of your consciousness that you have suddenly become aware of and that you value. I think that very strongly about that. Um, I think this is one of the things in, um, even in, in, in Freud's interpretation of dreams, one of the things that's happening is Things you do not understand, we are now going to give them names, mm-hmm. and the revelation may be incorrect if if we've you know the way we've come to think about Freud, but nevertheless the impulse the desire to name the world around you and of course by doing that control it in some way uh I think is really is is one of the impulses for poetry, it is also one of the impulses for prayer, yeah. But what I think is really important about that impulse for prayer, and I, I like what I've always been com- compelled by what Samuel Johnson said about prayer. Prayer should not be novel. It should not be innovative. It is very intimate. It sh- we shouldn't even think of it as poetry in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is that it gives you a great deal of latitude. Think about it this way. I sit down to write. What do I expect of myself just to sit down and write? And I think it it, it, it not being novel, not being clever, uh, or any of that. Um, so I, I at first for a long time I was mad at Samuel Johnson, but then I finally <laughs> thought, no, that that is a way of uh, liberating yourself. You're still trying to figure out something, but you're not demanding that you write Paradise Lost this morning. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a little anecdote. I can't remember who it was, um, but in the in the in the essay, where um, you know, the, I think the a, a writer's wife. They said, "Did he write all day?" And and it was, yeah, he wrote all day. And what did he write? Nothing. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's just a a great look way to think about that. Like we're processing all these things, even if yeah. we're not writing too. It's a, it's a mental yeah. space that we're trying to kind yeah. of chase where you can actually create. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, well, that's I want actually to... a Ray, that's a Ray Carver story. Is that Ray Carver? Okay. There's a character named Myers uh-huh. and his wife tells these friends Myers writes a little bit every day, and the friend says, oh, "That's impressive. What did you write today?" Nothing. Myers said. <laughs> <but> <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I want to talk a little bit more about this in more detail, but let's do another poem so we make sure we get okay. to good a good number. What do you want to do can, next?
1: Can I can I read something a little more upbeat than? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Than what I just read. Um, so the first section of my po- uh, this book uh, is a number of poems in which there's some figure, iconic figure at the heart of it. And uh, this poem is called The Dancing Seder. And it's about a statue that was dredged up from the Mediterranean oh, uh, uh, earlier in the 20th century, uh, piece by piece. This is the amazing thing. It came from about a depth of almost 2,000 feet. And different pieces of the same statue came up in a fisherman's net. And it today, at a place called Mazzara del Vallo, uh, I believe in Sicily, uh, it has its own museum. It's called the Dancing Seder. And it's, I think you'll recognize the form. I have been dancing 2,000 feet deep, dancing to for as many years, a figure of ecstasy, rapture of the deep. I sent up a limb in a fisherman's net, then toiled the same way up to join it. I have been dancing 2,000 feet deep. Frozen from birth in my bronze flesh, I was born to dance and be motionless, born into ecstasy and the rapturous deep. I sank with head thrown back, spine bowed, with mother of pearl in my unclosed eyes, I have been dancing 2,000 feet deep. And those members I have parted from, right leg, arcing tail, both arms, still figure in ecstasy, wrapped in the deep. Whether on the seafloor in the dark or bathed in lights in my own museum, still I am dancing centuries deep, a rapture of bronze and ecstatic sleep.
0: Excellent. That was the dancing
1: satyr. Yeah. Um, I was was with an archaeologist when we looked at this, and she said, this is the future of archaeology. It's on the Mm seafloor. But I also thought this issue of the thing in motion and yet in stasis and uh, achieving the kind of ecstasy in that rapture is one of the things that I'm I'm trying to talk about in dailiness and also in these poems. To me, it was a figure of the poem or of the poet. Um, And it all comes together piece by piece. And it's a villanelle. I've been played loose with it, but it's a villanelle. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So so the thing that I want to keep going on is you have an excellent chapter on metaphor, uh, or an essay on metaphor in this book. And um, and I've, there's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around for so long, but it seems to me in some way that if um, the creation of meaning is sort of the fundamental human drive, which I think it is, then we do it through language, and it seems like the fundamental way we do it, we create newness out of language is through metaphor. Like there's a weird way that comparing things to each other is sort of the fundamental basis for language itself. Like. A chair is only a chair because it has certain things in common, and we see this like this chair I'm sitting in as a metaphor for the chair you're sitting in. And eventually, we give it a name, and it's chair, and then we know it's a chair and don't have to pull that meaning out anymore. There's some weird way in that happen- in which that happens, and um, so so this this essay about um, about metaphor was so interesting to me, and, and just the way you think about it is um, there's something about um, how. Um, like a metaphor has to fail to be successful at the same time, yeah. which is such an interesting concept. Can you just explain a little bit about how you think yeah. about metaphor?
1: Well, I'm getting part of my inspiration for that thought from uh, a Robert Frost, one of his essays, I think it's on extravagance. Um, I mentioned in, in, in the essay where he says, to make the final unity, that is greatest attempt that failed. Hmm. Uh, that metaphor is an attempt to reach that land of uh, likeness that Augustine pictured. We live in a land of unlikeness, but in the land of wholeness, when everything is brought together, we will live in a land of likeness. And Frost is approaching that and saying that's the greatest attempt that failed. And then I start I'm thinking about the fact that any metaphor like the kind you just mentioned has to break down in a certain point because let's say a chair, uh, a metaphor using the word chair might be um, the outcropping of cliffs above Edinburgh called Arthur's seat. Mm -hmm. That's metaphorical for these cliffs that overlook uh, the city of Edinburgh. They're like a chair or a seat or a throne, Arthur's seat. But there's a place in which they are nothing alike. Mm-hmm. You take a little bit from it, you take something from it, and it gets you into a new place, a new this is uh, perhaps poetry, making a new reality with these two things he's brought to ge- you brought together. But only in the land of likeness and unity can they come together. Mm-hmm. So to me, the excitement is in a little failure. A little energy has given off. Uh, one of the great ways I think this works is in ah, W.H. Auden's, in memory of W.B. Yeats, he has one stanza or one part where he talks about um, poetry being a river where executives would never want to tamper. It flows south from answers of isolation and the busy griefs. It flows south, a way of happening, a mouth. Mm-hmm. And you can see this river flowing, like the Thames perhaps, into the sea where it gives off, it ceases to be itself, but it gives off this moment uh, of, it speaks in a way, it's a mouth, a river mouth. And I was trying to suggest it's that moment where the metaphor stops being a metaphor, the thing stops being it. And becomes the uh, another thing mm-hmm. you've got to move into something else yeah See, I, it's sense. almost it's in, impossible to articulate, yeah but that's what's wonderful about metaphors, mm-hmm. and that's all I was suggesting the greatest attempt that failed Robert Frost said he that we stopped just there he said mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that, just something about even that metaphor of the the mouth of a river, which we call a mouth, which is so fascinating too. And and yeah. you know, and all the fresh water comes out of it. But then there's that spot where the you know it merges with the sea and it becomes salt. You know, right. and and there you can even yeah. see that you know that that disconnected place. Yeah, it and, it and that's where thing. And, and that's where like um like we interviewed a fisherman poet one in one issue, and he was talking about how that's the area where the fish just love thrive because that's where the water's churning and mixing and it's full of food. The uh, yeah the Alaskan yeah. shelf or whatever they call that yeah. in the Bering sea. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating stuff. Um, there's a question here from uh Dick West Um, actually it says not question as Mark Hi. read Ursula lagoon. Um, she, oh, yeah. she unnames them about how Eve unnames all creatures, Adam named and created a new world of experience <laughs> and metaphor rather than names. Do you
1: have um, I have, um, But the thing is, they're both dealing with, you know, language and and a paradox. But so Adam names the animals and Eve uh, comes up with an Mm anti-language. I think it's a wonderful moment. You can play with it. It is one of those kind of. Moments in the Bible where you are free to interpret. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of. But I don't I don't know what else to say about that, of course. She would do the opposite. She would unname. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're both, um, they're both, they're both are going to need language when they walk out of Eden.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Even though language exists in Eden, sometimes people, I think, um, what is it? Meditation at Lagunitas, Robert Hass suggests that language is part of a fallen world, not for Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had language in, Mm -hmm. um, a prelapsarian world. Yeah. So and even God is doing you know, He says, here yes, I am. Yes. And so yeah. it's like, hmm, perhaps <laughs> language is that thing mm-hmm. which uh, uh, is related to human consciousness, including the soul. It's the animating principle, or it is, you know, to be metaphorical again, a symptom. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, well let's do another poem I should say if anybody has any other questions for Mark um, leave them in the chat windows on either YouTube or Facebook I'm watching both of those um, not on Twitter because I'm not paying attention there but uh, leave leave any questions you have on uh, YouTube or Facebook and I'll pass them along but let, let's hear another poem Mark
1: okay um, I'm going to read something that seems kind of grim at first but it's uh, uh, like a lot of the poems it tries to rise above its grimness um, it's just The title of this poem is Come Away, Come Away, which refers to the Shakespeare song, Come Away, Come Away Death. And after the massacre, to make love, to lie on the morning paper after the massacre and after making love and sing together a song of Shakespeare's, after the horoscopes and the massacre, to express our own defiance and come away from death inoculated for a day of dread, to read the paper and to ask each other what mourning to wear, sitting side by side in bed gazing into the future, then turning to each other and to nakedness alive, alive in all likelihood for a long time, more than long enough to make love, to sing after the massacre." Um. I, uh, um, that is a sense of um, the defiance of being engaged with making love or making art. Uh, it's. I like this poem. My wife doesn't like it. <laughs> I do. And that was kind of another come away. little sh- yeah. short one. <laughs> I have a series of short poems in the middle of this book, which are supposedly which actually chart through the pandemic. And this is, here's a poem about my parents. Um, I was born in Kentucky when my father served the church in Eastern Kentucky, and all of, all of his congregants were farmers. And my parents came away with uh, an expression that they used, as I say, all uh, their lives, uh, a kind of rain that was called a growing rain, a growing rain. Mm-hmm. Growing rain, term my parents learned in a church of farmers in Eastern Kentucky, the place where I was born, and said the rest of their lives in Scottish mist with a tang of cold smoke and an Oregon overcast. A growing rain, they said, whenever it fell gently and steadily, soaking without beating down, even on Christmas day, on patchy snow, a growing rain, though mealy, thin, or pointless, Good shoes darkened side by side at the bus stop. Woolen coats hung down with water weight. Crowding drops bled together on the windshield and reached the pavement. More than enough for all. The surplus of good and evil saturated the daily news and reaching for it from its cloud on the X-ray, the cancer quietly budded, blossomed. The growing rain kept falling all their lives.
0: Mm. Yeah. And that, that makes a, a metaphor out of the, the phrase they used, which is so interesting. Yes. Um, and I, was, yeah. I wanted to talk more about just how you come up with metaphors. Like in the process of writing, is there, is there a, a source or a strategy? Because you do, you do. You sort of save them for really good times, and then you deploy great metaphors. It's kind of a hallmark of your writing. Um, is, is there a way that you go about finding them, or do they come spontaneously when you're not looking? Or how, how, does, how does you come up with metaphor?
1: What a, what a good question. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer it. Let me put it this way. It's the moment where you think, for me, oh, I'm on to something here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the word, Something's emerging from this, and I'm going to see if I can follow it. I'm just going to see if I can follow it. I have a poem in here. It's too long to read about an experience, again, kind of, these are all, in one way or another, a whole section of these have to do with the daily sense of being encased by this mis- um, hostile mystery, perhaps, or threat. And it's, it's uh, something about a period where every night we could hear right outside the window of our house, of our bedroom, um, something breathing, a creature, perhaps. I tend to think it may have been a deer or, or even something larger, a coyote. Uh, sleeping there but it went on for a while one winter and then it stopped and i thought well this is simply a phenomenon but once inside of the pandemic i thought that sense of the the world breathing at your window and you, and it being a kind of mystery what could it be is it actually a person who's found shelter up next to our house we live on a hillside and mm-hmm. um, a bedrooms on the second floor. Anyway, um, was that it? And that's when I realized that the phenomenon which I had written about and recorded and heard might become uh, a, a metaphor mm-hmm. uh, for this other thing. That's the one that comes to mind. You, you, but usually there's something it has to emerge you know mm-hmm. or, or the poem doesn't get written or it's not or the poem gets written and it's not worth repeating to someone else unless that that coming together uh, occurs and you catch it mm-hmm. um, there's this, there was a wonderful essay by Denise Levertov which is included in the great anthology naked poetry she calls it the X factor so it's like you're, you travel over this space and land on the other side. And she said, then that is bliss. Hmm. And it's that factor that allows you to do that in a poem.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about it being a, a function of the bifurcated brain. And sort yeah. of um, the, the holistic, nonverbal way that the right brain sees the world sort yeah. of translated into a language that the left brain that we're more conscious of verbally can understand. And so it mm-hmm. feels to me like the... Process of metaphor must be somehow turning off and letting the the right brain speak a little bit, let, letting them have the controls a little bit and being free. Like there's a sense of freedom that comes from, you know, it comes out of nowhere. Like people talk about that, so it, it I don't mm. know. There's something to that, I think.
1: I think, I think uh, there have been periods where whatever that was, that duality, mm-hmm. um, has been named uh, for the the poets of the New Criticism, the Southern Agrarians, ghosts of Nashville here. It was the source of irony hmm. that that conflict of uh, opposites, that fertile conflict of opposites was the source of irony. And that was a defining characteristic of what they thought was the best poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can speak of it in other ways too. Yeah. The problem is, of course, um, that it's a binary condition and uh, we all know, we know, and I think quite rightly, all things binary are being profoundly questioned. Mm-hmm. That So that even the way we describe metaphor, well, there's A is B. Or similarly, A is like B. And there might be, in a sense, um, uh, too uh, narrow a sense of this mm-hmm. process in, in thinking of it in those ways. I know that's uh, been on my mind lately. Um but but in and again in an inarticulate way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah yeah. There's a way that the whole universe is some kind of like frothing sea of things that are all interconnected. The mm-hmm. um and and you know even in the out in deep space the um there's still like atoms popping in and out of existence in this like frothy right. dark energy and there's like sort of that dark energy to everything where there's no boundaries between
1: anything. Yeah. And, and sort of metaphor would, uh, lives there. Like, again, like that, that... Metaphor could live there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I think metaphor needs, at least for human beings, and it's also been brought into question by this very thing, and I was... I talk about it in the preface to Dailiness. I was reading something about... that oh, it's popular physics. That time, especially in, let's say, a stone or a pebble, time doesn't exist. It's an illusion. There's space,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but not time. And that's startling to think, right? <laughs> space and time are created at the same time. That's the problem, yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And of course, our whole sense of time and the premise of my book is uh, measured by, you know, our, our rotation around the sun, mm-hmm. orbiting around the sun. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> not not in other places mm-hmm. or even the sense of place or space perhaps is too um limiting, but that's that failure, the attempt to describe, it's, let's call the space and time yeah, almost mm-hmm. but all of the all the notions of eternity uh, at least in the you know in in most religions, step outside of space and time. They don't exist.
0: Yeah, there's just a, there's just a way that that poetry and all these kind of thoughts like live on the edge of something, you know, and it's why it's fun to talk about it, but you can never really get it, get a sense of it. Um, yeah. But let, let's hear another poem. What do you want to do next?
1: Um. Okay. Well, then. Um, I was going to read a poem about my neighborhood, but instead, I'm going to read one of the. There are a few poems about the passion and here, and I'm going to read this one. No one understood the final meal. No one understood the final meal, that it was final, each part with a meaning. No one understood as it was served, each portion of the body poured, doled out, strange flesh, strange drink, each portion of his body. And as they ate and drank, he talked even had a private conversation. All they remembered was eating with their friend, a meal they'd had so many times and known the order of. What was the order? But who can remember dinner yesterday? Forgiven for a crime not yet committed, enjoined to remember something not yet lost, they tried to bring them back, the taste and texture somehow, the meal, him. I'm going to read a poem that kind of goes with it. It's called Blackout Good Friday Night. Um, And my notion that grief, really unutterable grief, lasts much longer than the three days his disciples were without Jesus. But that's um, Blackout Good Friday Night. And this is also the occasion was one Good Friday a few years ago. We had a blackout on Good Friday night. We lost all of our power, and I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is just too perfect. Blackout, Good Friday night, wind and sizzling dusk, crackling and draining, no light. Saplings lopped off, old trees toppled on the ragged mandala of their roots. The friends of Jesus in their grief pit had no idea that they were only waiting. The dawn was rising underfoot. Living by candlelight, cursing the darkness. We are not lost, but only waiting. Already fast asleep when the lights come back on blazing. Mm-hmm. I just think of that moment. You lose your power at night. You think, I oh, just go to bed. And then in the middle of the night, all the lights come back. <laughs> yeah. On. Yeah. I was thinking about that. That's so, a way to think about that.
0: Hmm. Um, so, you, you know, you're most known probably for being a new formalist. And, and so can you talk a little bit about this? I'm an this, old
1: formalist now, my An girl. old
0: formalist. But it's been, still, I mean, yeah, you read A villanelle it a and it still time. informs the lines. You can hear it in the yeah. beat, in the sort of the, there's a surety of the rhythm of people who mm-hmm. have written informal poetry. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role that played for you? Like, why were you drawn to that in the first place? And then why are you sort yeah. of playing around at the edges of it now? Because the, the poem in the current issue, I should say, um, in Rattle 73 is a prose poem, which was kind of it's shocking to poem. see from you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I I published a book of prose poems uh, based on the uh, New Testament epistles, called epistles, back in 2007. And um, they were an attempt, after years of writing in form, to get away from that, to get away from that line, uh, the iambic line, to get away from the sonnet form. Although uh, (laughs) a, a critic... Took the first, very first prose poem in that book and showed how it had a sonnet structure. Uh (laughs) And once, when I was giving a reading to some very smart, intelligent young poets and saying, I'm trying to get away from the iambic pentameter line, one of them said afterwards, I heard a lot of iambic pentameter lines in that poem. Mm -hmm. Um, but the prose poem that you did called, um, and maybe, should I read it? And, uh, and then yeah, sure.
0: Sure, I can pull it up. Got it
1: right here. It's, it's new. Um, the prose poems we're working on right now are a, a bunch of them, mo- mostly about trying to think of, you know, hope, pat phrases, or important aspects of uh, uh, traditional spirituality. And one of the pat phrases is confession is good for the soul. Hmm. Right? And 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 this is not r- wrong, but so I was trying to think about that and I was trying to write it in a little paragraph form. I think the prose poem is the one space in which, you know, there are no rules except that it, you've got to convince someone that they've read a poem in prose. Hmm. And James Tate has a wonderful little prose poem about this. The, well, I'm not reading a poem here. I, it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm reading prose. <laughs> so this is good for the soul. Confession is good for the soul. And suffering is good as long as it ends. So is waiting. Toys, bread, and circuses are good. Alfresco meals with lovemaking afterwards, very good. Huge hanger-sized quiet is good but only on paper, only there. Autobahns where fast, blinking cars blare you aside, are good, very good for the soul once you're out of the way. Brinks and thresholds, balancing a dwindling glass for another's thirst, these are good for the soul. And a night so dark and clear you can read by starlight is more than good. What else is good for the soul? Another soul coming close. Another figment believing the stubborn illusion of time is good. And every atom listening within a pebble where there is no time, yes, no time, that will be good for the soul, like a long vacation. The entire void outside of space and time where the soul is going when it retires, that will be good. So, is everything good for the soul? Yes. Everything and nothing. One of the things that interests me that a poem can do, and sometimes it does it at its own expense, is to find that phrase that is undeniable. I mean, Robert Frost said, all we want to do is write a few things the world can't deny. But that phrase that is undeniable. So as I wrote this, when I came to, yes, no time, that will be good for the soul, like a long vacation. I thought, well, I could stop there. (laughs) In fact, I kind of like that. A sense of vacation, vacating, emptying. But I thought, no, I haven't said, I want to get to a point that is more absolute and undeniable, even though, in a way, it might seem glib. So I went on. So is everything good for the soul? Yes, everything and nothing. Everything is good for the soul, and nothing is good for the soul, too. Mm. Um, that's what interests me about these little prose poems. I'm trying to get to that moment uh, and uh, like poetry itself, any poetry, I, I got to include information, things my, my grandfather was in the Navy during World War II and he once told me about a night in the Pacific, he was, he, he was actually in the Marines and he was eventually stationed on Saipan uh, when it was so dark and clear he could read by starlight he could see the, star, the moon was not up but there was enough light in the sky he felt as if he could see by it and that it cast a shadow hmm. on the deck I mean I can only imagine but yeah. that, so I got that in. you know you have that's the thing that's nice about prose mm-hmm. I guess if you're writing a poem you can bring on all of these other things
0: so, so what makes it a poem like what uh, it feels ah. like the, the repetition is the key for at least for this poem um, you know there's that for me it
1: is yeah yeah for me it is and when I'm in in the prose poems I uh, I have written, like the epistles, it's all about repetition, uh-huh. finding a metaphor or several, the way um, Saint Paul does. Basically, he he invents the way we're going to think about faith as a suit of armor, for uh-huh. example. He has these martial imagery. Um, put on the armor of faith, put on the breastplate of salvation, these sorts of things. And you think about, you know, he's got got—he's got the whole Hebraic tradition to draw on, but he has to make up something new, a new way to think about what it means to believe, you know, the, to preach Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. So he is just working very hard metaphorically, you know, to find metaphors. hmm the most famous one being um, in Corinthians 13, First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is not, love is, you know, mm-hmm. well, it, yeah, I I should know that by heart, so shame on me. Shakespeare retakes it as love is not, uh, love does not alter. He takes, he, he deals with that too. So what am I, I've got myself one in a ball. Um, in the letters of Paul, he uses metaphor to help the early Christians think about what they believe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's a practical use of metaphorical language. Oh. Um, that's what I find challenging in prose poems too.
0: Yeah, that there's a way that the the repetition sort of drives the rhythm of the poem, and and there's a chapter in the dailiness about um about the use of repetition yeah. in poetry too, yeah. which is something that um I've I've always we do these critiques of the week every Friday, mm-hmm. and and when when sometimes you know repetition really works and sometimes it doesn't. And there's a way that, like, it only works if it's, like, shifting meaning a little bit. You know, it can't be a flat. But how does, a, how does repetition work and how does it, it not? It's hard to articulate what the difference is. But you can sort of feel when it's working and when it isn't. You can.
1: Um, so I'm looking at this, this essay, uh, The Story of a Feeling. And in the Gospel of St. Matthew, I say, Jesus warns his disciples not to use vain repetitions when they pray, thinking they will be heard for much speaking. Uh, But he goes on to teach them the most repeated prayer in Christian liturgy, which is the Our Father. So we want variation in ritual, song, and sex sometimes. The other times faced with reality that may be more than we can bear. We want the same old song. At the end of Waiting for Godot, Vladimir, struggling to put on his boots and facing another spell of waiting, declares, Habit is a great deadener. So like all repeated modes of being and artifice, habit beguiles the time. Until the Messiah comes.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: sometimes habit is stale and trite. We seem to enjoy repetition, but we don't want too much of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we need it
0: sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It almost works like a catalyst. Like it it either makes it more dead or more alive, depending on how it's deployed or, or depending on what's behind it or something.
1: Yeah, all you know. Then the whole notion of practice—if you're learning, le- learning a musical instrument—is uh, could be th- thought of as training muscle memory. You have to do this again and again and again until you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. If you learned—I know this sounds so banal, but I learned touch typing in high school, my freshman year—and it is it has always served me well, mm-hmm. except that. Until I had to learn the to phone. type on a computer <laughs> keyboard yeah. uh-huh. without having a return. Anyway, mm-hmm.
0: um, <laughs> um, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. I was going to ask you about one more thing. What was it? Um, oh yeah I was just going to say you never really explained what it was that um drew you to formal poetry in the first place oh
1: oh yes I will tell so, you yeah so um, what, there's something it, that just... I will tell you yeah go ahead when I was learning to write poetry I kind of schooled myself apprenticed myself to poets like Richard Wilbur and W.H. Auden uh but I came to a point where I realized, well, these guys are just old folks. What I, I am a great admirer and, of uh, Alicia Stallings, who was <laughs> on your show a while back. And I know that she was lucky in her classical training not to take any creative writing,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: I did <laughs> in college. Uh-huh. And writing and form just was not cool. Yeah, like you didn't do that. You didn't write meter and rhyme. I wrote a poem about surfing in meter and rhyme, and I was laughed out of the class. <laughs> and I thought, Oh my gosh, we're gonna change this. So I would say uh my first several books one, two, three, four, three, uh, are in kind of mainstream American free verse, which is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I uh, learned it from Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, who more or less wrote it. Uh, Robert Lowell eventually would write that. Williams. But when I came to write the poems in questions for Ecclesiastes, and I thought I really have got to find some way to identify this thing that has always identified me, even if I've denied it, which is faith. Mm -hmm. I have to do it, and this sounds counterintuitive, I have to keep myself honest Mm -hmm. and not be sentimental. And so I thought I need the discipline of form. So I returned to the sonnet. I tried to learn how to write good blank verse. I'd done these before, but not thinking about it, Mm -hmm. not thinking about them as disciplines. And so I did. And I thought, well, this feels right. Yeah, Um, And I continue... I'm not, I mean, I'm not as, what am I, what's the word? I'm a little more heterodox than a lot of my fellow formalists. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I get, you uh, know, sometimes. But um, uh, I always find thinking of the rhythm of the line as it comes from the traditional meter and the form of the poem as it conforms to some Traditional form, whether it's in poetry or some or liturgically or or something like that, these I find productive and helpful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm more conscious of what I'm setting about doing than I was before then, and I'm glad that I am.
0: And you know, you mentioned that it, it was uncool, and I actually I had a as an undergraduate before I was even. It was one of my first experiences with poetry. I had a professor who said, "Like thou shalt not rhyme." <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and, and why why does it become um, you know so? Why is it uncool? Like, like why do you think that happened? I, what is the driving force? I don't know that? what
1: happened. I think, I think, um, I don't know. But it, it, you know, it, it's like the son- the sonnet itself comes and goes. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it went through a whole century in the 18th century, which just kind of went underground, and they came slowly back, and then in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Williams called it a fascist form. So um, Meter and Rhyme gets has a kind of a political um, uh, connotation attached to it. Uh, when the new formalism began to come about, uh, there were critics, I shall not name them, who suggested that this was like Reaganism and the return <laughs> to uh, the right. And, and most of the formalists I knew were to the left of me mm-hmm. politically, so yeah. I just, I, this happens. It gets polarized. No one is helped <laughs> by that polarization.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That includes the polarization between um, language, postmodern poetry, and whatever it might be mainstream. Yeah. This is not helpful to understand each other if we want, are going to understand each other. Yeah, you know, I wonder. But I, this I, is it, Anna,
0: Yeah, It had never really occurred to me, but I wonder if any of it was um, actually like, you know, the influence of like anti-Soviet propaganda, um, you know, because there's the whole cultural Congress thing and they were had a lot to do with the founding of the Iowa writers workshop. Um, yeah. that whole, you know, like, like it, the abstract impressionist painters and, and things like yeah. that were funded, um, by sort of, you know, money through via the cultural Congress and the CIA and things. I wonder if that has anything to do with that. Uh, I,
1: that don't, if it was like, I don't like, think like, it does. I think yeah. it. I think it simply has to do with the, Fluctuations and um, and movements of the way art has changed. Yeah, you know. Do you think um, um,
0: do you think that that poetry would have more of a prominent place in culture if if the formal poetry had remained at the forefront? Because the people who don't read poetry regularly and haven't been through MFA programs and colleges and things like that usually say, you know, this doesn't even rhyme. If you hand them a poem, uh, like we just had a reading at our coffee shop in town. And, I, and somebody said to me, "This is this is cool, but none of it rhymes." <laughs> and um, I don't know—is is there something? I mean,
1: It depends the way the way yeah. people listen. Um, mm-hmm. People ears are their ears are filled with uh, verse, rhyming verse, and in the form of popular song.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the most recent, I mean, uh, hip hop is all yeah, yeah, Anglo-Saxon tetrameter.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And there's a pleasure that we get pleasure from these things and the attachment of political values or um, to them, it does not help Mm -hmm. because then you can't hear things anymore. You can't take pleasure in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, You can't take pleasure. If you think rhyming is wrong, then if you listen to a reading by a brilliant poet like Alicia Stallings, you're going to miss some of the pleasure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's like saying um, Mozart is wrong. Only 12 tone music is right. That's modern. Then you think, OK, then you don't get to enjoy Cozy Fantuti. Too bad for you. Yeah. So my sense uh, is again, a lati- lot of latitude, a lot of variety. Um, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: A thousand flowers bloom. Yeah, uh, let's finish up with one last poem, Mark. Uh, what do you want to close uh, with?
1: All right, well, um, I'll close with a prose poem, which is called In Closing, Let Me Say.
0: And, and where can I find so, that? Is there somewhere I can find oh, it? Oh, you
1: don't have it. Oh, I've, I don't. Okay. I've got it. It, it's, it was in a magazine uh, called Miramar. And I only say it's 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 kind of confusing. Let me read something that's not so gnomic. I'll read. I'll read this poem. My father died about four years ago, and shortly after he died, an enormous lunamoth appeared on our back door. And this is as traditional as I can be. It rhymes. It's in uh, Quatrains. I think you'll hear it. My father returns as a Luna moth. My father returns as a Luna moth, a green hand under the porch light. He comes back as a tree frog on the kitchen window, blown there by the storm overnight. My father returns as a red wasp on the venom she sticks in my knee. He sleeps in a paper capsule of the nest under the eave. And back he comes as a file of old letters, angry, commonplace, merry, and grim, airmail, flimsy, stationary, stiff, from him to me, me to him. He returns his hymn tunes and cufflinks, a diamond pinky ring that won't fit. He looks out as the passage from Micah engraved on his columbarium niche. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. He's there in a kiss with sealed lips. He's reborn as the ogape of his last breath in the solar eclipse. One day his signs and wonders may no longer make me think twice. Will he ever stop returning? Not in my life.
0: Yeah, beautiful poem. That was My Father Returns as a Loony Moth, one of the last poems in the forthcoming book. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for being a guest. It's just a pleasure talking to you and hearing your wonderful poems uh, re- read uh, for, for us in the audience. I uh, really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate it, too. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah, have a good night.
1: You, too. Bye. Yes,
0: yeah, so that was Mark Jarman. And um, his most recent book um, that you can buy, which I highly recommend, once again, is um, Dailiness here. And um, oops, let me get this. Here we go. Uh, dailiness, essays on poetry. There's a wonderful um, essay too. We didn't mention it, uh, but there's a great one on revision in that daily process, um, where he goes through different revisions of um, his poem "Eocene Beach Leaf," and you can see that the radical ways that it changed over time. Even a correction from uh, the Atlantic, which was fascinating to see. Uh, maybe I'll, can I show you that? Um, I don't. I lost it. I don't know where it is. But uh, but you can see all the little notes that he made over time to this poem here. Like, like one of my favorite books is um, Black Lightning. There's a great anthology that goes through well-known poems with, with the notes over time like this. And so you see that go from a long draft into a shorter poem. Um, just one of the many great essays in Dailiness. Um, the Heronry is his, um, I don't know where I put that. The Heronry is uh, his most recent book of poems. It's still out right now. And then uh, once again, the book that we were talking about is A Zeno's Eternity, um, the the dailiness and Zeno's Eternity are going to be from Paul Dry Books, and uh, you can find more of uh, Mark Jarman's website his dot com. So um, subdue, so check that out. Just wonderful stuff from Mark, and um, so glad we could have him as a guest today. Uh, now we're going to go to move on to the open lines. The uh, prompt for this week was to write a poem without using articles, which is a an or the. Uh, So we'll see if you did that. You can also share Poetry Spawn poems. Uh, You can also share whatever you'd like. If you'd published something recently that you're proud of, you can send me a link. Here are the details on how to do that. Um, What you do is email a poem right now to open mic. That's open mic at rattle.com. Then pick one or the other. Call in over Skype or call in over the phone. Skype is Rattle Poetry. Just type that into the chat window. Say hello, and I will call you back when it's your turn. Um, and the phone just call up 818-850-7727 that's 818-850-7727 just let it ring a few times then hang up and then i'll call you back within the next hour that is how the um the open lines work and we're gonna go to a quick break and stretch get this stuff prepared and we will get to your poems so um we'll be back in just a minute And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, people ask, do I really stand up and stretch? The answer is yes, I do. Um, this serves me for two and a half hours. It's a long time to be sitting in one position. So I do um, log into my open mic at ridle.com email account to get your poems and um, stretch a little bit because I, I like to stand up. Um, so let's go to um, Megan's prompt poem. So once again, the prompt was this right here. The prompt was... Get rid of Mark. The prompt was to write a poem without using articles. A, N, or the. That is uh, the prompt poem. And Megan's poem here is this. My daughter, or driving by my daughter's middle school. So here it is. Driving by my daughter's middle school. I look up. Crows everywhere. Black ink splattering. Blue canvas. Let her be Okay. I tell concrete buildings, chain-link fences, signs that read, choose kindness. Sixth grade, she explained to me, sour candy on her tongue, is dog, eat dog. I believe you, I say, remembering swim class, twelve years old. What my bully said, as she sneered at my unshaven legs, you are disgusting. How I rushed home, asked my mom to teach me about razors. Groups of crows are called murders. But crows look innocuous in flight Until they spot roadkill below Until they swoop to feast on something That never knew what hit it. And then it's Megan's poem, a wonderful one, again, and no articles. I don't know how, how she does it. I don't know how you do it either. So that was uh, the prompt poem for this week. That was Megan's Driving by My Daughter's Middle School. And now uh, let's see what you have. And let me try to fix the lighting here too. Uh, this is the time of year I deal with the um, changing sunlight conditions because it's full sunlight when the show starts and it is darker when um, it gets just gradually darker during the show. I should probably close the windows and get like really bright lights but I don't like bright lights in my eyes. Anyway, let's see. We have a whole bunch of people lined up. There's a great great group of people. So we have Nivedita, we have Angela Gartner, um, Dick Westheimer, Philip Stern, Carla Schwartz, Carlin Codd, Julian Matthews, um, we have a three seven two number. Uh, we have uh, ter- um, T R Paulson, Guy Chambers, Mike Bales. That three two seven again. So we better get to that. So let's get to some uh, open mic. A six three six is calling right now. So first, I'm going to call somebody that um, is used to it. So I can tell you when I call, it's going to startle you because it comes from the future, like thirty seconds. You're going to be listening to the last poem, and then bam, the phone's going to ring, or the Skype's going to ring. Um, Then answer it, but turn off your stream that you're listening to it, because I'm 30 seconds in the future. There's a delay. Otherwise, there's two Tims talking to you at the same time, and it gets very confusing. Also, have the poem ready to read in front of you, because you can't read it off the screen. Um, It's uh, that 30-second delay. Again, you're not at the spot where you're reading the poem, so it doesn't really work. You have to um, read your own copy of the poem. So let's call up uh, Angela Gartner first. And then we'll go to um, Carolyn Codd, I think, after that. Hey, Angela, how are you doing tonight?
3: Good. You did startle me coming from <laughs> the future. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah there's, there's just no way around it. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we could, I, I've thought about going over to Zoom, but I don't really like Zoom for the format. And there's certain things that I don't like that don't work as well. So um, we're sticking with Skype. But um,
3: I what think do you it's good, actually. So <laughs> I like it. <laughs> This is the only time I use Skype, actually, mm-hmm. which is
0: funny. Yeah, the, the thing is that when we started doing the show, nobody used anything, really. And now, you know, then Skype was just the thing, and then now everybody uses Zoom, but it, there, it doesn't really work as well for this broadcasting software. So uh, so what do you want to read, though, tonight, Angela?
3: Well, I, I don't know, like... um Am I allowed to read two or am I only get one tonight?
0: <laughs> um, Let's let's see. Let's keep it to probably one tonight. I think we have a lot a good number of callers.
3: OK. Um. So I have the clock or the foul mouth companions. Hmm. You know, the foul mouth companions is kind of fun. So let's just <laughs> <Okay>. read that.
0: <laughs> OK, sure. So, so what is the uh, the backstory or whatever for this?
3: Well, this was from, um, oh, my gosh, it it was actually from A Poet's Respond. And, you know, basically, I was just, like, thinking about, you know, all, like, the misinformation that kind of goes around. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And that's kind of where it kind of stems from. Um, You know, everything that's kind of going around, I just feel like, um, you know, everyone's got, like... It's so funny. I have to kind of look. It's so funny. (laughs) Where where did I get this from? It it happened a while ago, but I know it was from, let me see. What, what did I do? Like I, now I'm like, what, what was I, when was I thinking about this? Oh, okay. It's about like, I was just, okay. It was actually about, um, there was, there was a band book. So like, the school district is, there was, like, two banned books. And it's actually happening in our area as well, um, near my city. And basically, like, these school board, this the parents want to remove these two books. And looking at the books, they, you know, it's, it, like, it's not what they think it's about. And I just kind of worry, I kind of think about how you know nowadays it's like you know they they're not reading it, the whole book so they don't know what's really in the book and mm-hmm. you know the books are for in a high school library it's not in a middle school library and i just i just you know i was just thinking about like how banning like them going ahead and trying to ban these books mm-hmm. You know, and they don't really understand what it means when they think about banning books. Yeah. And I just that's what I think think it's just kinda also like I feel like there's so much misinformation out there. People are just like getting upset like on a whim. And, you know, this this kind of thing was just the 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 bird in the poem represents the books mm-hmm. and like <laughs> the misunderstanding. And if you just like delete everything and ban everything, mm-hmm. then you know, they're really not going to get that, um, you know, it, 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 the site. And that's the guy in the poem, the the one that um, the poet that I kind of quote in the beginning.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, he actually um, he's he's Russian and basically he wrote a poem about the Holocaust and he was mad that the Russians kind of didn't get involved. So um and oh,
0: okay. he yeah I remember that now
3: mm-hmm. yeah so that's so I mean it's the true what his quote was and I kind of kind of you know kind of replaced you know that it kind of started this this fictional scenario of this bird so
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay well here we go let's hear it
3: the foul mouth companions The truth is replaced by silence, and silence is a lie. Poet Eugenie Yuskosko in an open letter to the New York Times, February 1974. I knew some friends who had a talking bird. They taught him to say all the dirty words. Shit! Scream. We would laugh and drink, tell him to say it again. Shit! Shit! It screamed. The red wine splashed out of our lips. We praised and cooed at its mimics. One night, another couple brought their son. The colorful bird was sitting on its wing. Shit, it screamed. We gasped and covered the child's ears. The bird looked at us and waited for our cheers. On our next visit, the wing companion was gone. They told us they would no longer have parrots. Our friend's son, confused, asked for the bird who spoke the word he's heard from his parents.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's a cool poem. Thanks for the foul Mouth companions. And it's something that I, um, I think about all the time because we have, there are about, I don't know, two dozen high school libraries, maybe more, that subscribe to Rattle. And um, I just always think, like, one of these days, someone's going to pull out a poem and uh say what is this that's being you know in our library and then i'll be all over like fox news or whatever um <laughs> for, you know because well, you know, we have the- all sorts of things and rattle and and you know for uh high school kids they can engage with the world and stuff but uh I don't know. I could see people getting upset sometimes. I just I, every time I send this subscri- a new subscription, I'm thinking, I don't know if well, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> but okay. Well,
3: and and sometimes people don't understand. It's just words. There's mm-hmm. there's things that we say in private, that and 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 things that we say that we don't like. It's just words. And there's things we say in private and with with our friends. And there's also things that we say in writing. But it's not like everyone's going around and, and saying all these words and do and these things. And it's just I feel like, you know, a lot of things are just getting overblown. Like, you know, there's we should start to have kids understand what these things are rather than just, you know, there's some things that we say, you know, with our friends and there's some things we don't say with others, you mm-hmm. know, it's like but, you know, instead we just want to ban everything and, yeah. and cover their ears and, instead of actually making them understand why we sometimes use these words and it's just words. Mm-hmm. It's not like <laughs> yeah, it's squiggles on a page. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's reasons that sometimes we use those words and, and, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the appropriateness of them. And sometimes the, sometimes those words are appropriate, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, the, um, the story was about Fairfax, but um, in our district, we had not in our district, but a district that is in my area, there was this book and there was like 642 writing prompts and they decide, and there was some, I mean, there was probably some inappropriate writing prompts in there, but it's, it was a college level course and mm-hmm. we weren't, all the kids weren't using those prompts. And then, you know, now parents are upset. It's, it's like, what yeah. are we getting upset about? Like, mm-hmm. can't we tell them why maybe these prompts aren't good, but the kids weren't using them anyway. So, you know, it's the same thing with these books. The authors, you know, they try to explain that, you know, it's it's in the context and it is. And, you know, they're they're book club winners and mm-hmm. they were banning them, But the people who are complaining didn't really read them. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, anyway. anything, <laughs> anything for political, you know, field goal or whatever. Um, anyway, thanks yeah. so much, Angela. It's always great okay, to Okay, sorry to take time. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing up that thanks. topic and, uh, and a good poem. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks. You too. Bye.
0: So, Angela Gardner with, uh, I lost the poem title, but uh, it was a poem um, about censorship with with the S word in it. Um, and let's call up Carolyn Todd next. Um, Carolyn wanted to be on last week, so I want to make sure we get to Carolyn. Let's see. And she has a uh, prompt poem from last week. Last week's was to write an ode to autumn. So uh, uh, we have a bunch of first-time callers, so I'm going to hit some of those next. We have a 372 that'll do right now. Then we have a uh, 636 and a 917. Those will be the next three people I call up. Hey, hello? Hey, Rick, this is Tim with Rattle. You are live on the air. How are you doing tonight? I am great, <laughs> uh turn off that that, yeah, uh, that stream in your background. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. No problem. Okay. So uh, first and of all, I had sent my poem. Yeah, I have it right here. Uh, first of all, where are you calling from? I'm calling from St. Louis, Missouri. Ah, excellent. I'll make sure I put you in the uh, phone book as soon as we hang up. And um, what do you have that you'd like to share tonight?
4: Uh, well, uh, this is my gospel uh, called Kaddish. Interestingly, I wrote this as an assignment for uh, my forms workshop with Maria Nazos. Celine Frost, who you uh, published two weeks ago ah, for Sestina, is yeah. in our same uh, class. And, uh, and so when I wrote this, uh, Maria was like, well, this is good. Uh, why don't you send this to Tim also? Uh, and then, of course, tonight with, with, with Mark German on. Uh, I was just, you know, I mean, he's he's a god in formalism and uh, and and I've gone over into formalism now because I wanted to sort of restructure my poetic voice, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and uh, and yeah, and then I, I sent this out to you guys this past week because we recently had a, a news story about Illinois, which is right next door to St. Louis across the river. Mm-hmm. And they just uh, passed a milestone of twenty five thousand uh losses to covid and i just decided to to write uh my gospel for the week uh call it kaddish and talk about uh what a kaddish would be for uh for our world today
0: yeah yeah very good topic for a poem um and and great form too it's really cool you have a formal poetry workshop i love that
4: yeah we're we're having a great time with it and uh and uh you know you, you published Selene a couple of weeks ago. We've got some talented people in there. and yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. And some beautiful, some
0: beautiful work is coming out. Excellent. Well, let's hear this Kaddish. I have it on screen. Go ahead whenever you are ready. Okay. Kaddish. The
4: ten old men sit side by side comparing death. Say, we grow warm. The planet now is sharing death. Say, with each new storm and flood, the wounds grow deeper wild neighbors turn their heads away just daring death no masks no shots the death toll just keeps rising so these men know there's no point to try despairing death they make their peace in any soil that they find and know there is no stake in us forswearing death the ten old men begin to chant their kaddish now lament to face a stern and quite uncaring death they sing to all the things that we are losing now, a song of faith that brings us to unerring death. The old men call to bees and to the buffalo. They chant for all the things that will be wearing death. The, ol- the content of old men's hearts inform their prayers. They try to guard themselves from known impending death. They wish for all and pray for each. Escape from death. Pray, add my name. To chanting for lamenting death
0: yeah thanks for Thank sharing. You. that. yeah that was an excellent gozzle and uh i should say it was one of the ones that i had was closely considering this week it was a really good one um the only thing that you know i tr- like to try to mix news stories and things and there was this one about the testing which no one had you know written about but um it was very uh, a very good one so thanks for sharing that i'm glad you could call in rick Well, thank you,
4: and I I love the program, and I love the magazine.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you can call in and share poems uh, coming up in the future. Count on it. Take care. Excellent. Thanks. Good night. Bye-bye. Yes, that was uh, Rick Christensen. Let's add Rick to our phone book really quick so we know who he is next time. Let us call This 917- Hey, yeah, this is Tim with Rattle. You are live on the air. Who am I talking to? This is Pam Wax. Hi. Hey, Pam. So glad you could call in. And you sent a poem um, that is um, recently published in Solstice Magazine, it says.
5: Yes, correct.
0: Excellent. I think I hear myself in the background. Uh, do you want to mute that? I will. Okay. Yeah, so, so tell us about this. This is a approaching zeal, a run-on abacadarian. Or do you say Abacadarian? I guess you. I've always said Ab- I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think
6: you hear the C. Yeah.
0: So. Uh, so. And, yeah. Tell us about this.
6: Yeah. Do you know Natalie Diaz is Abecedarian?
0: I um, do. She mm-hmm. wrote
6: one um, called Abecedarian, or maybe you're right. Maybe it is Abacadarian, requiring further examination of Anglican seraphim subjugation of a wild Indian reservation. Mm. And it was a wild ride of a poem and really new for me to think about putting pen to paper and creating my own. I learned this particular poem with Jessica Greenbaum in a class I took with her Mm -hmm. and just decided to try one out. And unlike many of the poems I write, it basically came out in one shell swoop. And um, then I was very excited that it was picked up.
0: Yeah, so, so so for those who don't know, an abecedarian. I'm gonna from now on soften the C because I just I think I never actually looked at the word until just now. <laughs> um yeah. But so so an abecedarian is a poem that um each each line um each first letter of each line goes through the alphabet. So there will be 26 lines in this poem, and they go from A you know A through Z. And then there's a double abecedarian too, which is you do the opposite up the um up the last letters too. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's a form. I'm not sure who invented it or where it came from, but, but this is what we've got here.
6: Yeah, and it's a run-on in that I went beyond the Z um, for, for the A, B, C, D again ah, at the end. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, and really the basis of it is a, pra- a spiritual practice of cultivating character. So um, in there, the fact that zeal is in the title, the fact that the first word of the poem is alacrity, and then there's joy. These are all virtues. that, are, And then zeal, mm-hmm. obviously, getting to zeal, is all part of this practice of cultivating character.
0: Oh, very cool. Well, let's hear this. Go ahead whenever you're ready. It's up for everybody yes. to, to see.
6: Great. Approaching zeal, a run-on abecedarian. Alacrity, not my middle name, boldly lay siege item by item to a miasmic to-do catalog approaching zeal. That's someone else's doppelganger, not mine. I'm more easygoing, except when I'm not, a laissez-faire, drop-by-whenever, give-what-you-can kind of gal, listless. However you slice it, whatever its name, I gave up on musts and have-tos, just after my brother jumped from a bridge, knocking us from fixed latitudes and longitudes, like so many pick-up sticks or dominoes, cascading nihilistically toward a place our eyes are still adjusting to three years later. Perhaps it's relevant that my middle name, quixotically, is Joy, claimed, lost, now reclaimed anew, a virtue so mismatched to my guilt that I gathered it stick by sucking plastic colored stick until it resembled a structure, vulnerable but still standing, a cairn wobbling ever so slightly at the crossroads of a trailhead, aching to dance. You can choose this route or that, blazing in possibility, open to the winds, amid parting seas and timbals, or battle your brother at the jabbok. Circa, the rest of your God-given days, I choose both shores.
0: Oh, powerful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Pam. Um, and that was Approaching Zeal, a run-on abacadarian, which you can find in Solstice, a magazine of diverse voices, at org. Well, thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It was a really, really strong poem. I appreciate it, Pam. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Yeah, so once again, that was... Um, Uh, Pamela wax. Uh Oh, let me, uh, sign back into my, this happens every week. I always forget. Okay. Okay. So, um, we are back in, let's see. Um, let's go to, let's go to, um, Zachary Honeycutt. We haven't had him in a while. Hey Zachary, how you doing?
7: Good. How you doing, Tim?
0: I'm great. It's always great to hear from you. And sorry, I, I saw your note. You, you missed. You meant to read this last week, but you missed the time change. It was last minute. It was like six days before we had to move up the show in time. Um, but so this was a Ode to Autumn, I assume.
7: Yes, I, I'm very excited to read it. I was really bummed out last week because yeah, I was getting ready for the show like right before eight o'clock, and then I was like, oh crap, <laughs> yeah, I missed it. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. Yeah, no, no problem. It's not your fault. But uh, yeah, this is a satire of uh, a Florida autumn.
0: Oh, a Florida autumn.
7: <laughs> it's kind of like sarcastic. I think when I read it, you'll see what I mean about it being a satire. I kind of like took what Keats was talking about, and I, I just changed some of the words around the Like the last stanza is the exact same same rhyme structure as the stanza from his ode to autumn, just oh, with perfect different perfect. words.
0: Well, yeah, th- this should I'll be fun. It. And it, I think uh, actually weirdly last week, it didn't really feel like autumn here. And now it completely feels like the leaves are all falling on my face. I got to rake them and I take the dog for a walk at night and it's freezing. So, um, it's going to be fun to hear this, uh, to a Florida man or to a Florida. That's, autumn. How,
7: like, that's, <laughs> that's how it is here. It's like, I'm in Florida. So it's, the whole point of my poem was that the season like starts to change, but then it can't make up its mind. (laughs) It doesn't like go full out, like, you know, in New York or somewhere where it's colder. (laughs) So yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's hear it. I have it up for everybody right now.
7: All right. To a Florida autumn. Is it not the hour when time hurries back? I'm not sure. I don't think he knows either. Seldom I feel him plotting with the sun and hear soft evidence of things he's done. It's that time of year, the shorebirds don't say, cause they're not in the swamp, he is neither. And youthful students in the night of day stare at screens whether or not light declines early. No plowing done when the sun shines, nor hard labor of hand but of the mind, and slight cool air does not move their kind. The season can't pick a side of the fence to harvest its fruit, but like the ghost of a fuller autumn I heard of whence, I longed and dreamed to experience the most. He's not the boy that belly flops, head burst into the water, but he dips his toe. A ghost of a specter, imitation of the turning leaves and mock wind, as if his hotter father doth rescind his life. Why does the season bother go? If not all out, then why the frustration? Where are the large falling leaves? Maybe they forgot to fall. Masked children aren't playing in their mounds. Where is improving decay? Can't he decide if he's coming, staying? I still see the Frankenstein gourds. Pumpkins orange with health and pumpkins hurting. Speckled firm gourds among pasture hay and straw, grown by work worn yokels and country bumpkins. But the season is fickle like flirting younger women, and the leaf lack skirting is as barren a moulding I ever saw.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. that was a fun poem. That was a two yeah, of Florida no Autumn.
7: And um Okay, so this, can I read this? This is a ghazal that I wrote about. Yeah, you got to save
0: it, got to save it for next time cuz we got a one poem limit tonight. There's a lot of people on the call list. But uh
7: Oh yeah, okay. No but but I'll just, I just
0: I won't really... archive this. Just next time call in next week and we'll we'll share the other maybe the other two next week you we might have time.
7: All right. Really quick Tim, I just wanted to let you know I just got published again by uh-huh. Warp 10.
2: Uh-huh. Oh, I got cool. a
7: short story published, so Uh, Whatever you want, just check it out. It's called The End of August, and for anyone watching, check out The End of August on Warp 10 Lit Magazine. It's a really cool sci-fi journal. They had another writer publish something about uh, The Wizard of Oz Mm -hmm. and how there's these robots in The Wizard of Oz and in, like, modern literature in the past hundred years, and it's just a really interesting journal. So if you get a chance, check it out.
0: Very cool. We will. Warp 10. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. Bye-bye. And that was Zachary Honeycut with uh, um some fall poetry um and uh, check out Warp 10 too. I think I think he uh, it's a science fiction oriented um po- or literary magazine. We talked about it one time maybe 6 months ago or so. I have no idea which episode that was. Um uh, but check it out. Let's see. Um who should we do? Let's uh we have not had TR Pulse and I'm I'm trying to go through um instead of just in the order because we have a lot of people. So I'm going in the order of um the order of um people who haven't been on recently or, or at all before. We'll do them first and then we'll get to the regular the regulars more later. So um here's TR Pelson. Um TR hasn't been on in a while. And um not sure what she wanted to share. Hey your... Hey Tr. How you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing great and uh, here you come in. Hello, let me get you resized. So what did you uh want to share today?
8: Um, I want to, I'm a little bit overwhelmed right now in rejections from journals and having a lover's quarrel with a new poem I'm working on. So okay. I wanted to build my self-confidence by revisiting a published poem. Oh,
0: that's a good idea. Okay. And this was... Um, in... I
8: sent you the link to it. Yeah. I just opened um, it
0: up. It's, I'll put it on the screen for everybody. This is in J a, Journal.
8: Yeah. It's a poem that I wrote in response to the Kavanaugh fiasco when he was being confirmed a few years ago. And... You emphatically rejected it, and I did a little a lot more tweaking wait, of it. Wait a
0: minute, wait a minute. What does it mean if I emphatically inject something? Um, <laughs> there was just a... it's
8: my just attemp- attempt at weird humor. <laughs> <No>.
0: Okay. <laughs> so this is in J Journal now, The Devil's Triangle. Yeah.
8: Um, um, here is J Journal. Mm-hmm. It's a really neat journal like, for Poet's Respond Reject, because um, not. We, our first choice is rattle. But, <laughs> of course. But J Journal is great. Um, they The editors are very motivated to work with poets, so if they fall in love with potential, mm-hmm. they will still accept something and work with... I mean, my, I have a short story in a previous issue, and, I mean, we emailed back and forth with, like, four different drafts of my short story. Mm-hmm. That was in 2013, I think, 2014. And so they're great. Um, the poem, however, they... Um, it, this isn't the version I sent to you. I tweaked it a few, a little bit since then, but they said they wanted this version exactly what it was, so there was no back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really, um, they're very theme oriented as far as justice. And a lot of the Poets Respond poems are yeah. mm-hmm. justice, you know, about justice, about right and wrong. Um, they're not just looking for, you know, stereotypical like criminal justice type stuff, mm-hmm. but all different kinds of justice. Yeah. So I highly recommend it for anybody that. Wants some place to submit.
0: Yeah, very cool. And it's um, jjournal.org. So it's pretty easy to find and remember. jjournal.org. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah. And um, so I'll go ahead and read the poem. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. The Devil's Triangle. Three glasses in a triangle. Brett Kavanaugh. Not that. I see a three-sided room. One wall gleams of friendstone, globs of golden yellow dripping molten beads that slide and run all over sixty degrees the angle to its fellow formed by flames hot as passion or a welder's torch or sixty times as hot the darkest room and all gehenna this ungodly triune's elder guards the gate into this grisly fest of gloom a line of spinning pitchforks form the stinging sulfur fumes to the wordless tongues that hiss and spit up sparks a place for torture slinging villains only a man who forsakes with a kiss a child slicing ruler a naked father a bad guy with a gun or do i look and see it's all a lie
0: oh excellent i love that there's uh that was uh, the devil's triangle and a a sonnet and you know it made me think we haven't had we haven't published a sonnet in a while actually i don't know what it seemed like sonnets were having like a little time in the sun and now we're not getting as many i wonder why
8: well the poems i'm working on that i'm having a lover's quarrel with are a (laughs) series of sonnets that i hope to surprise you with in january as
0: a chat book excellent i'm looking forward to that yeah
8: at this pace, it'll be five
0: Januarys from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that, T.R. Always great talking to you and sharing uh, and sharing. Yeah, good poem. talking thanks. to you, too. Yep, good night.
8: Night.
0: It was T.R. Paulson with uh, The Devil's Triangle from J Journal. So th- thanks for sharing that, T.R. Let's see. Let's call up uh, Caitlin Buxbaum. Caitlin hasn't been on since July, so let's call up Caitlin. Caitlin! Hey, how-
5: weird setting on Skype where... Um, it was only showing at the very top of my screen, this mm-hmm. little bar that yeah. said, you're getting a call. And so I didn't even know you were calling oh, me really? for a few seconds there. My bad.
0: No, no, no problem. Uh, so what is the poem that you wanted to share? So and it's I good to see you, by the way. I haven't seen you since July.
5: Yeah, it has been a while. And so that's why I was like, man, I, I, I've been really slowing down on the production front. I've uh, been I busy you, with too. a lot of things, uh-huh. um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to write one for this week, and I just didn't get around to it. And so I was looking real fast, and I found one that I uh-huh. posted to Instagram um a month or so ago. I tried to put a link in the chat here for you. The oh, link
0: in the chat, okay.
2: I
5: don't know if you can pull it up. Yeah, because this see. was like five minutes ago that I... Okay,
0: let me... um uh, where's the There's the chat. There's the link, okay. And now, there it comes. So everything works perfectly. So this is uh, from Caitlin's Instagram, which is Kate's uh, C-A-I-T, Buxbaum, B-U-X-B-A-U-M. So if you want to follow Caitlin on Instagram, that is where you do it. And this poem is Manic. So what do you want to say about it?
5: Um, Well, it's not in the normal style that I write. It's a little more experimental, but also I think kind of fitting with the subject matter. And I've never read it aloud. It's just kind of a little thing that I wrote and I was looking through it and no articles. So. um, Oh, perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, uh, let's hear it whenever you're ready. Go ahead.
5: Okay. Let me pull it up again. All right. Manic. Spinning out. Eyes aglow. Breath sharp. Love. Hate. Drive. Reckless passion. Starved blood. Sure. Stimmied. Day. Night. Spiraling. On fire. For futures we crave. Peace we deserve. Lost. Just. Out. Out of reach.
0: Wow. No articles. Excellent poem. Manic by Caitlin MS buxbaum And um yeah, I don't know. You just you wrote a poem spontaneously with no articles. I don't know how you did that, but uh <laughs> that's perfect. Thanks, Caitlin. Magic. <laughs> yeah it is. Like, see in the um, future.
5: Before I run off, sure. I will like to invite people to a reading on Wednesday um with an organization called Poetry Bridge mm-hmm. on Zoom. I've heard um somewhere yeah yeah. i actually been to one of their meetings once before but um there's me and one other guy from the organization that are going to be featured readers on wednesday and that starts at 7 p.m pacific Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure because it's 6 a.m or 6 (laughs) p.m alaska so seven o'clock wednesday night pacific time um people can come listen to me read more you
0: probably put the link on your like instagram or something right
5: I actually don't post a ton of poems no. and things. I post posters and flyers mm-hmm. for events, um, but yeah, people can message me if okay. they want. Yeah, the message link.
0: Caitlin for so. uh, the link to that Poetry Bridge. Thanks, Caitlin. Great to see you.
5: Yeah, you too. Yep. Good night. Bye.
0: It was Caitlin Buxbaum with Manic, and um, now let's go to um, let's go to Guy Chambers. Oh, Guy hasn't been on in a while either. Hello? Hey, Guy, how you doing? I hear myself in the background, so it's mute bad. that. I'm... Yeah.
9: Yeah, how's it going? I haven't been down there for a while, so I know.
0: Yeah, you <laughs> haven't been on since I'm May. At... It's like a, a reunion of sorts. Yeah, thanks yeah. for calling in, I'm Guy. Be...
9: Yeah, I've been busy. I had a bunch of poems published here to the States and down over in New Zealand and that, and I've been hosting a poetry show, a show, Poets in the Park up here in Canada and uh, it's every third Wednesday of the month, and so they wanted me to get that program going, so they got me hosting that, so oh, I'm mean, pretty busy doing stuff, yeah. So this poem here, like, uh, I know we had the prompt here, so I found this one poem there. Mm-hmm. Like, I usually like to get poems, uh, I just get words together or something like that and see what I come up with, you know, and then decide what I'm going to do with it. And I came across this word, Adam's Ale, so... This is the poem here, so I, this is what I came up with for it.
0: Okay, cool. Go okay. ahead. Yeah.
9: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Adam's Ale. Far unknown for those of eyes never seen in the seascape. Coral reefs, praised with virgin blue angel water. Promise ripples there with... Raindrops gathering for within-life breathing. Dusk, dawn, deep dawn, rafters shining off moonlight. Caressing endless for and after, thereafter and hereafter. Breathing winter green, lone avatar Harley Quinn in Davy Jones' locker. Drifting in Adam's ale, entwined with undying promise, with a new dew, magical, rhythmical, blessed, hearted, grace upholding, embracing into deep blue receding, caressing Adam's ale with the keeper's gift to enlighten eternal Eden in the Orlocks of the raptors Ralph. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Guy.
9: Yeah, okay. Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, have a good night. That was Adam's Ale. Excellent poem.
9: Yeah, okay. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye good guy. night. <laughs> yep, you too. Bye.
0: That was Guy Chambers with Adam's Ale. And uh, now let's go to Cause I already forgot the order. Phil Stern next. Yeah, okay. Hey Phil, how you doing? You're live on the air with Rattle. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, what did you want to share with us tonight?
10: Okay, first of all, uh, I'm also, I also live in Florida.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs>
10: <laughs> and I do have some August poems, but they're not for Florida specifically. And I also missed uh, last Rattlecast with uh, Marissa, so uh, I have two prompts that I tried to work with. Um, I was encouraged by uh, Deborah uh, Kalaji's uh, in, in, in talk to write you, my first haikus mm-hmm. since I was in high school. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Well, these are short, too, so let's let's do both. Go ahead and, and do the, I have two autumn yeah. and the haiku up first.
10: Right. Okay, I approached the uh, two autumn um, as the season, uh, as Kate suggested, it was part of the Beauty in all the seasons, so the, and I post it as a life cycle. So uh, I have women, man, and family. To autumn, your children scattered, husband upstairs napping, warm bread in the oven. To autumn, man, receding hairline, worried walk to the mailbox, late night TV jokes. To autumn, family, moist cornbread stuffing, gatherings of laughter, awaiting FaceTime call.
0: So uh, try to end each. The autumn version. And I I love the the last one, the waiting FaceTime call. Great juxtaposition there.
10: Yeah, I was, you know, I'm new new to this. And I'm not sure how how much, you know, they conform to the style. I know uh, that the uh Deborah suggested that there was a lot of freedom mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that uh how well it can be called, uh you know haiku
0: I th- I think it counts as far as I'm concerned but uh <laughs> these are good so the other one is the uh the prompt for uh, this week the um the la- Correct. no articles right. another haiku so let's hear this one too
10: Okay, this has no articles, but it's also about the topic. Old spy movies. Do Russian hitmen train to eliminate English articles? <laughs>
0: that, was, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Those old spy movies and then the two autumn sequins. Thanks a lot.
10: All right. Thank you for
0: allowing me to. Yeah, Bye. always a pleasure. Have a good night, Phil. You too. Bye. Bye. So, Philip Stern with uh, a little round of haiku. Let's see. So I was going to do this. I almost forgot. I was going to play this. I'm just kind of curious what this was. I was about to play it before we went live with Mark Jarman. And um, this is a a This Week, Four Years Ago poem by Dorian Lux. And um, let's see what this actually is. Because it's only a minute and 49 seconds to play. Um, But we'll read the description from Dorian. She says, I wrote this poem after reading what Russian Foreign Minister Siguri Lavrov told reporters at the United Nations last week. We have to calm down the hot heads. We continue to strive for the reasonable and not emotional approach uh, of the kindergarten fight between the children. So this was uh, October 1st, 2017. And the story was... Um. Oh, U.S. challenged by rising North Korea tensions. Russia urges calm. Remember that? Like, remember when North Korea was like the big news thing? Um. Yeah, with the rockets and stuff. And there was that that one fired over, uh, or the the false alarm that one was fired toward Hawaii. I think it was. Anyway, this is Dorian Lux's poem that um has to do with that. Let me just get it set up, and we'll play it. Turn on the volume first so I don't blast you by accident. Here we go. This is Dorian Lux.
11: If it's the last thing I do, this green-lit world in autumn, falling to red, to rust, Midas touched, as fuses are torched and rockets flare into blue over the Pacific. Two grown men squaring off in the schoolyard, too stupid to fear, Too numbed by power to feel the air riding over the bare skin of their soft hands. Not a lick of a good day's work between them. TV host of sleepless nights. Childhood's parents fighting in the kitchen. Someone throwing a pot of gold against a wall. Equal as all get out and giving in to their lesser angels those seraphim that tumbled through clouds of coal ash and acid rain and landed on their feet, miraculously unscathed, but with an unworldly ability to hate. Of late, the trees are turning skeletal in preparation for the shivery winter, all of snow laid down on the earth like a funeral cloth. We may not live, To see another spring, another yellow summer, another flood, another famine, another war. Maybe this is that time when we wish them dead. Our parents, go ahead, we thought, as we lay in our beds. Just get it over with and do what you keep promising with a raised fist will be the last goddamn thing you ever do.
0: And once again, that was Dorian Lux with If It's the Last Thing I Do, a great poem in response to the uh, tensions between the U.S. and North Korea four years ago. It's so fascinating to look at these old poems because I don't remember them at all. And then as soon as they start, then, I, then it all comes rushing back and I remember it all, uh, which is what great poems do. So thanks for sharing that, Dorian. And um, now I think we're just going to quickly go to uh, my Saiku And the Saiku this week, if I can find it. Was uh, based on this story right here. This is from um, um, here we go. This is from Florida State University. They did some research um, about how well how how well the details and the vividness of your memory were affected by the sense of purpose that you had in life. So what they did is just they happened to um, give out these surveys and, and start this study right before the pandemic. And they gave these surveys that showed how much a sense of meaning and purpose you have in your life. And um, and then they, after sort of the, you know, six months later, this was like January 2020. And then so after that, they asked them to follow up and describe their experience during the pandemic. And they found this correlation between how vivid and detailed the memories were of, of the pandemic time versus a sense of meaning you have, which reminds me of, um, I'm supposed to be showing this as I talk, but it reminds me of... Um, there's studies about um, uh, people in elder care homes. Now, if they have some kind of pet to take care of, even if it's a like a goldfish or something, that they will um, have a, a greatly improved cognitive functioning based on just that, just having some kind of purpose and meaning. Even if it's just to feed the goldfish once a day, it really helps. And um, so this is a confirmation of that research. And, um, and it was also a day yesterday where I was doing a lot of um, baseball stuff with my son. We have Little League, and I coach his team. And... Um, We watched The Sandlot, too. So I was just thinking about, you know, being a kid that age and and the vividness of that and how much meaning it had to um, be playing baseball at age seven or whatever. And this was the Saiku, and I I put it in a little um, haiga. So it's a Saiga form, and it is right here. Fall baseball, our footprints fading in the dew. Fall baseball, our footprints fading in the dew. That is your Saiku for today. And the prompt for next week is right here. Write a poem in second person. Uh, One of the most famous poems written in the second person is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. As an example, so check that out if you want. Um, Or There's a lot of examples in Rattle, too. But the the theme is to write a poem in the second person, so it's pretty easy. A you poem, as uh, we think of them. And that is your prompt for next week. And your guest for next week is... Joseph Fasano, another just wonderful guest. We've really been having good guests lately. Well, the whole time, 114 good guests. But uh, Joseph Fasano is one of the early winners. I think the winner of the third, maybe second, Rattle Poetry Prize um, for his poem Mahler in New York. Um, He's since been the author of um, four books of poetry and a novel that just recently came out. The Crossing is his most recent book of poetry. He is one of the most elegant and musical poets writing today, I think. Um, just It's his pleasure just to the ear, listening to him write and read. And um, that's going to be Joseph Fasano, Rattlecast number 114. The regular time, Sunday, October 17th, one week from right now, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. And thanks again for being a, a great audience. And, and I love it all the time. So thanks so much for being here. Hope you have a good week. See you soon.